It's 1935, and Jacques Cousteau has an insatiable desire to explore the wild blue yonder, the sky. It's his dream to become a pilot and fly for the French Air Force. He's accepted into France's naval aviation program, and the talented young pilot shows great promise. But with only a few months left before graduation, tragedy strikes. He's driving down a dark and winding mountain road when all of a sudden his headlights short circuit. Cousteau loses control of the car and flies off the road. When he regains consciousness, Cousteau realizes he's in the hospital. He's horrified to find out that in addition to dozens of broken bones and multiple fractures in both arms, the right side of his body is paralyzed. He's survived, but his career as a pilot is over. After months of grueling physical therapy, Cousteau is sent to a naval base in the south of France. He is determined to regain his strength and the full use of his arms, so he starts swimming in the Mediterranean to help rehabilitate his broken body. Eventually, his strength and mobility return, and so does his exploratory spirit. He's surrounded by intriguing marine life he's never seen before. Then Jacques Cousteau has a brilliant idea. He decides to fashion a pair of swimming goggles from a pair of old pilot goggles so that he can explore the sea floor. And in this moment, his life has changed forever. He discovers an entirely new world beneath the ocean surface. Plants and sea creatures he never knew existed capture his imagination. Seemingly overnight, Cousteau discovers his new passion, the ocean. In just a few years, Cousteau will help invent the Aqualung, a piece of equipment that will launch decades of underwater ocean exploration and cement him in history as a pioneer of the aquatic revolution. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. floor is a wonderful watery world of rippling movement. The diver is going to locate the octopus. In this submarine world of wonder, beauty peeps out in unexpected places. You know, this diver's rig isn't the easiest thing in the world to handle. How would you like a trip to the bottom of the sea? More than 70% of the planet is covered by ocean. But we've only explored 20% of the deep sea. Our lack of ocean exploration, however, is not due to an absence of interest. The mysteries of the deep have captivated the human imagination for centuries. We look across the surface of the ocean. We look to the horizon. Helen Rose is the author of Vast Expanses, A History of the Oceans. But we cannot see into the ocean. And I think that is probably the kernel of why we are so fascinated by it. And this fascination 
as it so often does, sparked a technological innovation. In 1535, an Italian inventor named Guglielmo de Lorena invented the first modern diving chamber. It allowed people to breathe underwater. The diving bell. He built his bell with the hopes of exploring a first-century Roman shipwreck. It was no simple task. It was a task that required ingenuity and creativity, but also bravery. These chambers were not for the faint of heart. Imagine an upside-down giant pot, and it's lowered into the water, and it is big enough and heavy enough that as it goes into the water, it leaves a reserve of air in the top of the upturned pot-like structure. And so a person can ride down in it and survive by breathing the air that's trapped inside the diving bell. As the bell descends, the chamber slowly fills with water. As water enters the bottom of the bell, it compresses the air at the top of the chamber. Depending on the depth, a diver may have access to only a few inches of air at the very top of the bell. Later iterations of the diving bell were usually tethered by a hose to a ship at the surface tasked with resupplying the diver's air reserves. In the early 19th century, the next leap forward in deep-sea technology took the form of the diving helmet. But both helmets and bells were primarily used to explore shipwrecks and recover sunken valuables. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that an essential shift in our collective perspective changed the way we began to explore the deep sea. You had a group of naturalists who started wanting to study the interesting marine creatures, which they at first discovered when they got washed up on beaches. And so that made naturalists start to look to the ocean as a place to discover new species and possibly species that would help them understand the origins of life. But it was a widely held belief that marine life could not survive without sunlight. It took a completely unrelated technology to change our minds the telegraph cable. At the time, it was thought that sunlight could not reach further than 1,800 feet below the ocean's surface. Then one day, one of the cables in the Mediterranean Sea stopped working. When the team tasked with fixing the cable pulled it up from a depth of 7,200 feet, they made an unexpected discovery. The cable was encrusted with marine life. It couldn't have accidentally attached to the cable as the cable was raised for repair, really changed the game in terms of uh, sending people, you know, back to the ocean to really not just try to collect marine animals and study them from a couple of feet or fathoms down, but from the deepest parts of the ocean. But while the desire to explore the ocean was revitalized, the technology to do so was limited. Really, the only way that people could explore the ocean was free diving, so breath hole diving. Uh, so you were limited to a few minutes. This is Philippe Cousteau. He's the grandson of the great underwater explorer Jacques Cousteau. And hard helmet diving. I mean, th- we're talking the big copper helmets, big lead boots, and you had a hose up to the surface on the boat. This was very dangerous, very difficult, very expensive work. 
These are some pretty significant technological barriers to ocean exploration. It wasn't until the 1940s, after Cousteau recovered from his car accident, that these barriers started to disappear. It's at this moment that Cousteau has a fortuitous encounter with a young engineer named Emile Gagnon. Gagnon explains that he's invented a valve that can regulate the flow of gases between two different pressures. This piqued Cousteau's curiosity. And my grandfather said, do you think we could miniaturize this valve, put it on a tank of air, and breathe off of it? And they tinkered for a few years, and indeed, they did that. The result was a system that regulated airflow so that air stored in tanks only flowed when the diver inhaled. You could go down several atmospheres where the pressure builds, and you would breathe in, and you would just get one lungful of air. So the valve itself was was the key innovation. Cousteau and Gagnon named the technology the Aqualung. Today, you probably know it as the scuba tank. And now, all of a sudden, humanity had the ability to swim freely in the ocean like a fish. The idea of, of, of a lung being able to breathe underwater. The Aqualung allowed unencumbered movement and supplied enough air to stay under the surface for more than an hour. But Cousteau didn't stop there. He also wanted to share his discoveries with the world. So he created a waterproof camera case that allowed him to film the fantastic creatures and sights he explored using his aqualung. The footage he captured became the basis for his first film, entitled The Silent World. Released in 1956, this documentary was one of the first films to show the ocean's depth in color. There was a famous scene in, in The Silent World where he is, is dancing with a, with a grouper. He has a little piece of fish in his hand, and he's kind of leading the grouper around, and there's, there's music, and it's, it's this, this beautiful, radical relationship uh, and, and literal dance between a person and this very large fish. Now a fish had a personality, and it was interacting with a human being underwater in its own habitat. I mean, this was a revolution. Cousteau produced numerous documentaries in the following years, bringing the beauty of the deep sea into living rooms around the world. I think it's hard for people to appreciate just what a mystery the ocean was. All the things we take for granted now. Coral reefs and, and sharks and whales and you know, all these incredible creatures that exist in the ocean that are now part of our, our common knowledge in documentaries and movies and books. They were a complete mystery to people. The Aqualung spawned the sport of scuba diving, which has made ocean exploration accessible to millions of people around the world. But diving with a full tank of compressed air strapped to your back has its limitations. Breathing compressed air, we can go about 50 meters into the ocean for a short time, but oxygen under pressure becomes toxic. This is Sylvia Earle. She's an oceanographer and a National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence. So is there a reliable, modern technology that will let divers go deeper and stay down longer? There is, and it's called the gym suit. Spelled J-I-M, was named after Jim Jarrett, who is the test diver for the first of these hard suits made of magnesium alloy, lighter than steel, the first one that he tried during the 1920s in England. 
Joseph Perez was the designer. Perez's gym suit was one of the first truly usable atmospheric diving suits. Jim Jarrett took his suit to a staggering depth of 477 feet. And then, 35 years later, Perez was contacted by two engineers who understood the value of his invention. And in 1975, the new and improved gym suit could reach a depth of 1,500 feet. So inside, it's like getting into a car or an airplane. It's one atmosphere. But you can go deep in the sea with high pressure all around you, but you're protected from that pressure. You have a a life support system. Like an astronaut, carbon dioxide is scrubbed out, oxygen is added as needed, and the gym suit acts like a little walking submarine. And you have hours to walk around at a depth beyond where scuba divers simply can't go. In 1979, Earl was planning to use a gym suit to explore the ocean bed off the coast of Hawaii. The plan was to lower her into the water attached to a cable that was anchored to her boat. But on the day of the dive, there was a problem. The sea was extremely choppy, which caused her boat to violently rock and bob in the water. Her team was worried that her line would tangle or drag Earl across the ocean floor. They debated canceling the dive, but Earl's team was also equipped with a submarine, which gave her a daring idea. Hadn't been done before, and it's not been done since. They strapped the gym suit with me inside onto the front of the submarine. They likened it to being a hood ornament on a car. (laughs) I was really perched on the front of the submarine. And that's how Earl made her way towards the ocean floor. And then, in the darkness, she saw something. It was incredible. There are all these little flashing luminous creatures fish with lights down the side. Looks like a miniature ocean liner streaming by. Plankton, little copepods, little crustaceans about the size of a flea. When they illuminate, it's just a burst of bright blue. It's like diving into a galaxy of light. When Earl reached the ocean floor, she removed her harness and dropped from the hood of a submarine. She took her first step completely untethered on the seabed. She was 1,250 feet below the surface of the ocean. I landed in a place where there were corals, like spirals, like big whiskers, animals that just curl from the ocean floor. It looks like a giant bed spring. But when I touched them, they burst into blue light. Rings of blue fire just traveled the, the length of these amazing giant whiskers. The experience transformed how she saw the ocean and everything in it. What you can't see from the surface is how full of life the ocean is. It was just glorious to be immersed in this living system and to realize that I was witnessing something that so few people have had the opportunity to see. Sylvia Earle is right. The ocean is full of incredible amounts of biodiversity, and she encountered it firsthand. But the ocean isn't just a source of life. It can also take life. It's April 14, 1912. The largest ship on the face of the Earth 
is sailing through the frigid waters of the North Atlantic is the RMS Titanic. This 882-foot-long luxury cruise liner and marvel of modern engineering is carrying 3,300 passengers on her maiden voyage from Southampton, England to New York City. But just before midnight, 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, a sailor perched on the ship's lookout tower spots an iceberg. The captain attempts to steer around the massive block of ice, but it's too late. The Titanic slams into the iceberg. The ship that was built unsinkable begins to take on water. And less than three hours later, the ocean liner slips out of sight and beneath the icy waters of the Canadian Atlantic. More than 1,500 people on board the Titanic died that day. Visionary director James Cameron brought this infamous story to life with his 1997 blockbuster movie, Titanic. And in 2005, Cameron continued his near obsession with the Titanic by organizing a live broadcast exploring the ship's wreckage and its final resting place. One of the men on this team was an Australian engineer named Ron Allum. He was introduced to Cameron after Allum's former cave diving partner received a rather unexpected call. And he gets his phone call saying, yeah, I'm James Cameron. And, um, of course, he just didn't believe it. But um turned out to be true. Yeah, I, I guess it all really started from there. Cameron hired Alum's friend because he had extensive experience producing underwater documentaries. But Cameron also needed skilled engineers on his team, so he hired Alum. It was my first experience at anything deep sea. I was looking after some very small uh, remotely operated vehicles that could be deployed from the uh, submarine and controlled by Jim from inside the sub. And, you know, he, his idea was that, uh, you know, he wanted to you know, have one of these small ROVs go into one of the broken windows uh, on the first-class deck. The result was a live broadcast that aired in real time on the Discovery Channel. The broadcast was a stunning success, but Cameron wasn't done. There was a lot more ocean he wanted to explore. Often, you know, between uh, dives, these are dives to, um, you know, Titanic or the Bismarck or the hydrothermal vents, yeah, we'll discuss around dinner, you know, just uh, options for the future, you know, what you might do on the next uh, expedition. Alum and Cameron eventually set their sights on the ultimate underwater destination, the Challenger Deep. Nestled in the Mariana Trench off the coast of Japan, the Challenger Deep is the deepest point on the ocean seabed. It's roughly 11 kilometers, nearly seven miles, below the surface of the ocean. The Challenger Deep had only been reached once before. In 1960, the team of Jacques Picard and Don Walsh reached the Challenger Deep, but they were only able to stay at depth 
for 20 minutes, and they weren't able to take any photos before they had to return to the surface. So Cameron needed Alum to design a whole new submarine, or submersible, that would allow them to perform an extended survey. Often you would draw on napkins, and I still have some of those original sketches, and his vision of a submersible to go to the Mariner's Trench. Um, It was a vertical uh, vehicle. It was more akin to a a rocket to go up and down. Uh, So Jim's concept was this vertical machine that would descend quickly. It had to become packed, relatively light, easy to transport, and very buoyant. One of the biggest challenges was actually to... I find a flotation material and a lot of the commercial foams at the time weren't suitable. So we actually manufactured our own syntactic foam. Our foam was more than just flotation. It is equal in uh, strength and density, uh, which meant when it was subject to great hydrostatic pressure, it didn't bend or distort or crack or break. And that was the ultimate breakthrough. The Deep Sea Challenger was born. On March 26, 2012, Cameron and Alum were ready for their most daring adventure yet. Alum watches Cameron step inside the submersible's cockpit. The immense pressure at such a depth is Alum's greatest concern. The smallest leak in the vessel's exterior will cause a sub to implode. There are so many things that could go wrong with such a dangerous mission. Release, release, release. Cameron says. Alum nods in agreement, and the deep-sea challenger drops. We were in constant communication with Jim for him to just report on on you know, his feelings about the dive, you know, he described his descent, you know, it was like a, an express elevator to the bottom of the ocean. But everything goes according to plan. As the submarine descends seven miles straight down into the deepest crack in the ocean floor. Cameron spent the next three hours exploring this deep sea terrain. And for the first time in history, the world's deepest point was extensively photographed. The sub's high-definition cameras captured footage of several new sea species. For such a bleak and inhospitable location, Cameron discovered a surprising amount of life at the lowest point in the Earth. And those samples could lead to breakthroughs in biotechnology and even our understanding of evolutionary history. And none of it would have been possible without the ingenuity of Ron Allum. Ron Allum and James Cameron pioneered new depths of ocean exploration. But there's another team that one day hopes to investigate oceans on other planets. Ocean X was founded by hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio with the belief that the ocean is humanity's most important and underexamined treasure. And he's right. The vast majority of the sea is unexplored, 
But Ray and his son Mark are on a mission to change that. We had a little bit of trouble finding the whale. This is Mark Dalio. He's Ray's son and the creative director at Ocean X. He's been on many dives, but his first dive in the sub might be the most memorable. And then off in the distance, we saw some movement and we thought the whale must have been moving slightly with the water. And so as we approached, we realized that it wasn't the whale that we saw, but a massive six-gill shark that was taking a huge bite out of the whale. It was quite a thrilling experience. I think from then on, it really kind of set me on a journey for the work we're doing with Ocean X and the content that we're creating off of the Lucia. Alusha is Ocean X's 184-foot research vessel. The ship is outfitted with two submersibles, both of which can reach depths of over 3,000 feet. It also doubles as a floating media studio where the Ocean X team films documentary content for programs such as BBC's Planet Earth. In 2016, the Ocean X team took Alusha on their most demanding voyage yet. They took it to the deep waters of the Antarctic Ocean. When they reached their destination at the bottom of the world, their deep rover submersible was launched and sank below the ocean surface. The Antarctic Ocean is one of the most remote places on Earth, and before OceanX, no team had ever attempted to reach its seabed. So no one was quite sure what they'd find. What Mark and his team saw shocked them. These uh, weird, strange creatures that are just all over the place. It really was teeming full of life. Um, and one was this Antarctic starfish that was absolutely massive and had 50 arms. And we actually nicknamed it the Death Star because it was ravishing these krill. But these sub-zero oceans aren't just a place to discover creatures we once thought only existed in our collective imagination the Antarctic Ocean has a greater global significance. And I was astonished to encounter a large volume of marine snow, which is kind of the nutrients that feed the rest of the oceans, which are these kind of dead matter from creatures. It was like snowflakes in a very large blizzard. And I didn't realize the role that Antarctica played in providing the nutrients for our global ocean system. OceanX is also setting its sights beyond this world. They've teamed up with the NASA Jet Propulsion Lab and the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute to test out a new underwater drone named Orpheus. Orpheus is unique because it's designed for autonomous deepwater exploration. It's an AUV. Autonomous underwater vehicle that would someday be able to explore space and the planets that have a large amount of water on them. But in order to be able to test that out and work in these extreme environments, they use ocean exploration as a way to be able to do that. Orpheus is programmed to autonomously explore, map, and photograph underwater environments. And hopefully, one day, explore strange alien worlds. But for now, Mark and OceanX have plenty left to discover here on Earth. 
They've even teamed up with Ron Allum's old friend, James Cameron. Ocean X and Cameron are in the midst of filming a series of expeditions for National Geographic and testing out a new state-of-the-art research vessel that they've appropriately named the Ocean Explorer. For many centuries, mankind has been trying to reach new depths. Courageous and innovative explorers have built devices that let us breathe underwater, explore shipwrecks, the Mariana Trench, and the Antarctic Ocean. But we've really only discovered how much more we have left to explore. The insatiable curiosities of daring explorers and breakthroughs in robotics and autonomous technology are helping us reach uncharted waters every day. But one thing is certain, the most significant era in ocean exploration is just beginning. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. For more information about any of the guests on today's show, please visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Thanks for listening.